Hi, I'm Mia, host of the Beauty and the Broken podcast. During our time together, we will hear the stories of what broke us and what healed us, how great beauty can be born out of our brokenness, how our hardest moments in life can lead to moments of growth, how we can find victory even when we feel like we're losing at life. I've personally found great encouragement from people who have been where I have been and survived what I didn't think I could. And that's what I want to bring you here on this podcast. So join me at Beauty and the Broken for real life stories of brokenness and the beauty that can be born in the healing journey. Hi, friends. So today I am going to be sharing my own story of brokenness and the beauty and the healing that came out of a season of suffering. I want to lead the way with you all as I move forward into letting you share your stories of brokenness and healing. I want to be the first to do that for all of you. And so today you will get to hear my story, which really goes back a long ways. I was somebody who dealt with an eating disorder or disordered eating for most of my life. Really probably started at the age of two when I just was labeled as a picky eater. Ultimately, as a young kid in elementary school, I had a doctor grab my belly and say to me that if I didn't lose some weight, I was going to have a heart attack at a young age. And that's when the dieting started for me. And by my senior year of high school, turned into a full-blown eating disorder. Into my early 30s, when I finally reached out to a therapist to get help, to get healing from my eating disorder, because I began to see how it was affecting my own child. The problem is, when your mental health is in such a poor place and you are Listening to that eating disorder voice, it was giving me a lot of really bad advice because while people think that the goal of an eating disorder is to make you thin, the goal of an eating disorder is actually to kill you. And that's exactly what was going on with me. I had started showing signs and symptoms of diabetes, and that's a disease that runs in my family. So I knew. I knew what the risks were, and I ignored it because I heard that disordered voice in my head telling me, you don't deserve help. If you could just get it together, if you could just control your eating, if you weren't overeating all the time and making yourself throw up, you wouldn't feel this bad. You wouldn't have diabetes. So it took me a lot of work to finally get to a place where I talked to my doctor about my diabetes, about the signs and the symptoms that I was having. And (laughs) He looked at me a little shocked and said, yeah, you've lost a lot of weight. I'm not sure if I believe that you do have diabetes. Well, come to find out, I actually had type 1 diabetes. And if you know anything about type 1 diabetes, um, you actually tend to have a lot of weight loss before diagnosis. That's a pretty, pretty key symptom. And I had lost a lot of weight. In fact, I remember people telling me all the time, oh, my gosh, you look so healthy. You look so great. Meanwhile, nobody had any idea, really, except for me, that I was kind of dying on the inside. So I finally finally got this diagnosis, confirmed with lab work, started taking insulin. And about six weeks later, was having 
signs, symptoms that I really thought were more related to my gallbladder. Woke up, epigastric pain, nausea, vomiting, indigestion that got worse during the day. And so I had my grandma take me to the emergency room and drop me off because this was uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic in 2020. And so unfortunately, I couldn't have anyone in the hospital with me. They did a bunch of imaging. Didn't really find anything wrong. So they sent me home with some pain meds, nausea meds, and a follow-up with the urologist because they just happened to find a kidney stone in the imaging that they were doing. And three, four days later, I woke up on a Saturday morning, excruciating neck and jaw pain, inconsolable. And my husband looked at me and said, I think you're having a heart attack. We're going back to the ER. And I thought he was crazy, you guys, absolutely crazy. How could I at 33 years old be having a heart attack? And sure enough, after hours of testing, they finally found that I, my symptoms from the last four days were, in fact, from a heart attack. And when they went in and did the cardiac cath, they actually found that I needed to have open heart surgery um, to have what they thought at the time was three bypasses, um, ended up being four bypasses. Yeah, that was a lot. And if you remember, I said it was right at the beginning of the pandemic, and I couldn't have any visitors. My husband got to come in about an hour before my surgery that morning, and that was the only time that I got to spend with him. And we FaceTimed my son, and I remember thinking, what if the last time that this child ever sees his mother is through a phone screen? It was terrifying. And yet, even in the midst of all of that, I knew I wasn't alone. In fact, it was really beautiful the way to see that people showed up for me. I remember nurses coming in who were friends to friends of mine and said that they had heard what was going on with me, um, that they were praying for me, that their friend or their family member had sent them in. Um, The perfusionist who was in my surgery actually was the sister-in-law to some friends of ours, and she got the surgery assignment changed that day so she could be in the room with me. Chaplain that I used to work with um, happened to be on duty the night that I went into the hospital and came and sat with me for a while and had a friend from church who, even though he couldn't be in the hospital, ran would run laps around the hospital every day that I was there and stopped by my window to wave at me. Uh, my dad parked outside the hospital while I was having my surgery. And when I finally came home, I had just tons and tons of messages, people all over the world. I mean, literally, I think we we kind of figured it out and probably people on just about every continent in the world were praying for me through that season, through that surgery. So it was just really beautiful that even amidst that, what could have been overwhelming loneliness to just be able to have that reminder that I wasn't alone. And then even during the recovery period, to have people bringing meals, sending gift cards, gifts, cards, words of encouragement. Again, sometimes we get in those seasons of suffering, of feeling so alone, and it's so easy to isolate ourselves 
But man, there are people out there who will love us, who will show up for us if we let them, if we reach out, if we're really intentional about that. And so that, that recovery from that surgery was, it was such a beautiful reminder of not only of people being around me, but of God just being with my family, of providing for my family, even in very tangible ways, because that's what those people symbolized. Those people were God's hand and feet. Those people were God's provision of making sure that we were taken care of and making sure that we knew as a family that we were not alone and that we were not on that journey alone, which was good because that journey was far from over. Even at that point, um, I had finally gone back to work part-time. I was in full swing with cardiac rehab. I was actually feeling really good, feeling really good about myself, feeling like a warrior. And then one day I woke up and could not stop throwing up and, um, went to the emergency room again, which was terrifying because, you know, the first time going to the emergency room, finding out I had a heart attack and, you know, going back with similar symptoms was just really scary of like, okay, what could this be this time? Fortunately, it was, it was actually my gallbladder this time, what I thought it was going to be the first time. Um, and not only did I have to have my gallbladder out, but it was gangrenous. It was just dead because, you know, why not after everything else my body had been through? Um, Unfortunately, the surgery did not give me the relief from the nausea and vomiting that most people get after having their gallbladder out. And so I think within 24 hours of being home from that surgery, we were back in the emergency room and that was a sight to behold (laughs) because I had was totally dehydrated, throwing up. My poor husband was holding this emesis bag, those little blue bags. If you've ever been in the hospital, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's holding this blue bag up to my face. I'm splinting my abdomen with one arm while I don't even know how many nurses and techs came into that emergency room trying to start an IV on me so they could do imaging and figure out, you know, what was going on. Did I have a bowel obstruction? Was there something, you know, in my stomach that was causing all of this? And uh, I remember the nurse practitioner coming in to talk to us about me being admitted, telling me that they couldn't find anything wrong. And so they were going to keep me so that they could continue to run tests on me. And then said, you know, you're going to want to follow up on that mass that we found outpatient so they can do a lipoma versus liposarcoma. And my husband looked at me and I looked at him and he goes, did she just say you have cancer? And I looked at her and I said, do I have a tumor? And she goes, oh my gosh, did nobody tell you that we found a seven centimeter mass in your abdomen when we were doing this imaging? (laughs) Absolutely not. (laughs) No. No. Um, so that was a huge, that was a huge shock. Um, yeah, it was a huge shock. And ultimately during that hospitalization, uh, really was never able to figure out quite what was going on. Um, but it had this really, really beautiful, profound moment while I was in the hospital. And 
Um, I had, I mean, throwing up for days, couldn't get it under control, not with meds, IV fluids, nothing. And I had this nurse who she had taken care of me one evening and then had a couple nights off and came back. And I remember her very bluntly grabbing the skin on my thigh and pinching it and going, look at how much weight you've lost. You're going to die like this. And I remember walking into the bathroom and looking in the mirror and just saying, I'll be damned if this is how I die. I thought back to all those times that I had made myself throw up. And I thought, this is not going to be my end. This is not how I'm going to go out. I wasn't going to let that eating disorder, I wasn't going to let throwing up be the thing that took me. And so I walked out of that bathroom and I'll tell you what, if you guys know um, that song, Glorious Day, where it says, you called my name and I ran out of that grave. Whenever I hear that song, whenever we sing that song at church, I see myself walking out of that bathroom and deciding that I was going to live, that I wasn't going to let this take me out. And so I got to go home and prepare for surgery for this tumor. Um, it was a roller coaster of emotions. And some that I kind of kept to myself, some that I let my family support on it, support me in. It was just, it was a lot. Um, so I remember going to that, the cancer center by myself for the very first time. Because again, guys, it was 2020, it was COVID. And I, I don't know, I still am not sure what was scarier, sitting in the hospital for two days waiting to have open heart surgery by myself or going into a cancer center for the first time by myself. I honestly couldn't tell you which one was scarier. Um, but I remember being, going out throughout these appointments because they kind of schedule you for a whole day of seeing everybody when you're in the cancer center. And, you know, as we're discussing what the plan is for me to go through this surgery, everybody's kind of has this attitude throughout the day and is telling me, you know, we don't, we don't know what we're dealing with. We're not really sure if this is cancer. We're not going to know until we get in there. And I met with my last specialist for the day, and that was the radiation oncology team. And the radiation oncologist kind of went through the same spiel. You know, we don't know, we don't know if it's cancer until we get in there. However, our plan is if we think that there's any chance that it's cancer, we are going to do targeted radiation right into your belly just to make sure that we can take care of this. And then he sent his nurse practitioner in to sign consent. And the nurse practitioner, um, as I'm signing this and my husband's on FaceTime, my husband kind of reiterates with this guy, well, this is just in case we have to do radiation, right? And he says, oh, no, the doctor's pretty sure that, that this is cancer. They've seen this before, and they're pretty certain that that's what this is. So we're pretty, pretty positive we're going to have to do this. And, man, that was a punch to the gut. And I just remember leaving that appointment totally stunned. And I go up the elevator 
from this appointment and I'm walking past the front desk and the gal at the front desk stops me. Hey, um, hold on. Nurse practitioner wants to talk to you before you go. And so he meets me at the, in the lobby and he said, Hey, I could tell you and your husband were really upset about, you know, what I said. And so I went and made sure that I wasn't getting things mixed up. And, uh, you know, no, the doctor said that in most cases of like yours that he's seen, it usually ends up being cancer. (sighs) And I still had weeks to wait. And I'm telling you what, guys, um, that was a hard season of faith. We really kind of kept it quiet that there was this high likelihood that this was cancer because I was really struggling to balance my own emotions. And I knew I wasn't going to be able to balance anybody else's emotions. And so we really really kept that to ourselves, just between me and my husband. And I remember so many people at my church so faithfully just speaking life over me that this wasn't going to be cancer. And I just really, really struggled to believe that because everything I heard was to the contrary. But there was this worship night that we had And I still remember this woman laying hands on my belly and praying for me. And after she got done praying, she looked at me and she just said, I just heard the words, it is finished. And guys, I wanted so badly to believe that. And I I couldn't believe it for myself. And so I really had to lean on her faith. And this was just another reminder to me of the importance of community amidst everything that I was going through, of being in that space where I didn't feel like I had my own hope or my own faith to lean on, but God gave me people who had hope, and God gave me people who had faith that I could lean on when mine felt like it was just hanging by a thread. It is so important that we have people around us, that we have people of hope around us, that we have people who are going to encourage us, that we have people who are going to speak life into us when we don't feel like we have any life ourselves. And so surgery day came, and uh, they anticipated that I would be in surgery for like six hours, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, and it was going to be a long recovery, and I was going to have to be in intensive care was the whole plan. And the surgery took about 45 minutes. And they got in there, and they looked at that tumor, and they were like, man, we don't even think this is cancer. And I was able to go straight to a regular bed on the oncology unit. I didn't have to have any time in ICU. And uh, though we had to wait weeks to get the results of the surgery, I was so encouraged. And um, it ended up not being cancer, which was just such a beautiful moment and reminder of, again, God's faithfulness and his provision through his people, through having those people that I could lean on no matter what, those people who were going to uphold me with their own faith when I didn't have my own faith to lean on. And so, friends, I hope that you have people around you. Because 
we can't heal in isolation. It's not good for us to be in isolation. We were not created for isolation. I know so many of us get into seasons where we just want to be alone or we think that we're loners. That's not what we were created for. And I learned that in such an acute way in the years to follow all of those surgeries. Because I went on to deal with depression and anxiety and even a PTSD diagnosis out of all of that. And my tendency was absolutely to isolate myself. I didn't want to have to try for a relationship with other people. I just wanted to be alone. And it was so bad for me. It was so bad. Things just festered. There are things that grow in the darkness, guys, that we don't want growing in our lives. Shame grows in the darkness. Depression and anxiety, they grow in the darkness. There are things that fester there that we don't want in our lives. But being able to finally, finally press into the people around me through therapy, through reaching out to my doctor for medication, for just pressing into my community, friends, family, loved ones, for prayer, for encouragement. That is where I ultimately was able to get freedom from dealing with anxiety, from dealing with PTSD. And so again, like my story of brokenness was this snowball from my physical health to my mental health. And what brought me healing out of that season truly was people. It was community. It was having others around me who could provide for me what I didn't have within myself. I didn't have the ability to take care of myself. The people around me had to do it. My husband had to do it. I couldn't cook. I couldn't clean. I had to bring people in to do that, to help with that for me. When I didn't have hope, when I didn't have faith, there were other people around me that I could lean on for that. And then when I was stuck in this darkness of depression and PTSD, I had to have other people bring light into that darkness for me. And so, friends, if you're in a season of brokenness, if you're in a season where you don't know a way out, get people around you. Do not isolate yourself. I know it's going to be hard. I know what you're thinking. Like, I can't. I can't take that first step. Take that first step. Whether it's a text message of saying, hey, I'm struggling and I need help. Whether it's a phone call. Whatever it has to be. When you are in a season of brokenness, make sure you've got people around you. Thanks so much for joining me for my story today. Join me again where we will talk again about brokenness and how to find healing. <laughs>